it's no surprise that the Iron Man from 2008, the movie that launched the MCU, is beloved by both critics and audiences. And on today's show, I'm digging deeper into the original Iron Man. I'll be analyzing the film to see what storytelling techniques it uses to wow audiences. If this movie had failed, by the way, we might not have a Marvel Cinematic Universe today. But we do have the MCU because this movie was extremely well received. On today's show, I am breaking down the reasons why Iron Man is considered to be so great. Now, first up, let me take care of a couple of housekeeping items. One special thanks to Mike Faber and Mike Gordon for having me on the ESO podcast to talk about Peacemaker, the DC series Peacemaker that's on HBO Max. I always enjoy hanging out with the Earth Station crew, and I appreciate the invite. You can listen to that on the Earth Station One podcast, so check that out wherever your preferred podcast listening happens. Two, special shout out to Ishmael Lopez Medel for inviting me to speak with his digital storytelling class about storytelling in the modern day. That was a lot of fun. Always good to hang out with some students and see the next generation of future writers. So thanks for having me in your class, Ishmael. I appreciate it. And three, Novus Renaissance should be back as a sponsor for the show soon, which I'm very, very grateful for. If you have an upcoming event where you'd like to have me as a guest, please reach out to me and let me know. I'd be happy to talk storytelling at one of your upcoming events. Also, if you'd like to support the show, please head over to patreon.com slash work. You know, the old Story Geeks Patreon account is completely closed down now. So I appreciated everybody who supported me over there, but that account has been shut down and I've moved everything over to patreon.com slash works. If you want the additional content that I produce or if you just want to support the show, that is where you can do so. All right, let's dig deeper into Iron Man. I should note to you as I dig deeper into this uh, show, as I kick off this show, there are YouTube videos for some of this content as well. So uh, I wanted it to be in two formats. So if you want to watch on YouTube, you can see some of the things that I prepared that are visuals. Um, but if you prefer to listen via audio, totally different recording. Um, it does not. I will try to describe some of the visuals to you so you get a good feel for what they are and how they work. But just so you know, if you want to see those, or you know, I can post them on uh, the Patreon account too. So check them out on Patreon or check out the YouTube videos. Either way, the first thing we're going to do, we're going to talk about several different things related to storytelling that make Iron Man work as a film. And I'm going to do this for more films as we go along. So you know, maybe sometimes we'll see how the storytelling techniques are either not in the movie or they don't really work according to the way that the storytellers were maybe hoping that they would work. But let's start, we're going to start with uh, story structure. We're also going to talk about character arcs and character development. And then we're going to get into the premise, the theme and the concept. All of those things are core pieces of content, if you will, that relate to how a story functions. Now, it doesn't mean that you have to use all of these things the way that I use all of these things, or the way that these storytellers use these things in order to have a great story. However, what we can find is if we break these things down over time, we can find commonalities in stories that people love that relate to the use of a lot of these techniques. So just keep that in mind. Um, you know, as I break these things down, I think much more as a mechanic 
Um, my former co-host, Caleb Monroe, who I hope to have on the show soon, he would call himself a muse. He doesn't break things down the mechanical way that I do. He just goes for it, right? And he knows some of these things inherently, and they come out in his stories, and they make his stories uh, ultra creative. I just keep tinkering with the story to see how I can get it to uh, be punched up using storytelling techniques that I know to be to have been studied and and be good techniques, right? So there's multiple ways of approaching these things. I'm just breaking them down from my perspective. So let's dig into uh, story structure first. Now I want to start with explaining a little bit about what story structure looks like. You probably learned this in in high school, but there there is a narrative arc. There is a story arc that exists out there. There is a traditional story structure or narrative structure that we can refer to that, uh, that has been around for millennia, by the way. Um, this goes back into the Greeks studying storytelling and probably you know, before that even. And how does that arc work? Well, if you were to look at it on a piece of paper, it looks like somebody's drawn like just a, basically a big arc. And at the bottom left of that arc, the start of the arc, you see that everything is normal. And that is the, the setup. A story begins with everything is normal. Then something happens and there's there's conflict, there's rising action, everything is changing, uh, the conflict is driving that change, it's driving the character change, it's driving the plot. Then we reach the climax of the story, which means that something needs to be done because it's just getting to the point where it's completely ludicrous and someone needs to make a choice or someone needs to make a, to do something differently. It's called the climax of the story. And then after that climax, we have a falling action, which is basically the closing. And then we have the new normal and the resolution. So every story goes from one normal to a new normal. The world cannot be seen as the same. You can look at it, you know, there's lots of different examples of this. And I'm going to specifically get to Iron Man in a minute here. But if you look at like a story, let's just say like uh, Lord of the Rings, you start out in the Shire. Everything's great. Everyone's happy. Everyone's having second breakfast and, and having parties and having fireworks show up, you know. And then all of a sudden, there's an, there's an inciting incident and everything crumbles around you. The new So, so now you're faced with all of this conflict and you're called into, in this case, Frodo's called into a bunch of conflict that he was not anticipating before. And then, the, then the, of course, they reach the climax. What's the climax of Lord of the Rings? It's when Frodo is about to throw the ring into Mount Doom. He's not able to actually do that, which I think is a fascinating concept, and that's a totally different video. Um, but then, of course, Gollum takes it and then falls into, the, falls into Mount Doom, and then the armies are able to defeat Mordor, and you have a new normal. There's a new normal after that, right? Character has gone through the character arc. Plot has gone through the plot arc the premise has either been proved or um or not proved and the audience can be kind of frustrated by it but that's generally speaking how a story will go well it just so happens that as we've become a little bit more complex with our storytelling we've started to put more terms um, around some of the the basics of story structure so you'll you're probably familiar with the three act structure so the three act structure you can just actually uh, paint over the top of the narrative um, arc, the narrative story structure, and it's very, very similar. So in Act 1, you're going to have everything is normal, <laughs> and then there's an inciting incident, conflict occurs, and then throughout Act 2, there's all this conflict that happens. You reach the climax, and then Act 3 is basically the closing of the story and the resolution of the story. So it's Act 1, Act 2, Act 3. Generally, generally speaking, if you were to see that... Um, uh, written out, right? 
you'd have let's pretend for a second that it's a two-hour movie because it's the easiest way for me to demonstrate this especially via audio where i have to describe it let's say you have a two-hour movie the first half hour of that movie is generally generally speaking going to be considered act one then act two is about an hour long it's like two half hours right and then act three is also a half an hour long so a two-hour movie any story really that follows a three act structure can be divided up into four distinct parts, not just three acts, but four distinct parts. The first part is act one. The second part, the next 30 minutes is the first half of act two. Then the next part is the second half of act two, which is also about 30 minutes, like in a movie. Oftentimes in plays too, it's around the same length. Sometimes plays are a little bit longer. And then the fourth half hour is your act three. So there's this, there's a little bit of a um, uh, symmetry to the way that the storytelling structure with the three act structure sort of works. Now, this you can break these rules. These are not hard and fast rules, but they tend to work this way for movies because now, how do I know they work this way for movies? And um, how was this figured out? Well, there's a guy named Sid Field who taught a lot of screenplay writers how to tell stories. And one of the things that Sid Field did, and you can read about this in both his book Screenplay or the Screenwriter's Workbook, is that Sid Field said, what is common about movies that audiences and critics love? What's common about them? And he went in and he looked at the structure of film. And there's a couple things that should be noted. One, the narrative arc or the storytelling arc, storytelling structure, narrative structure, plus the three-act structure both apply to films. So this is millennia's worth of testing and learning about stories to come up with what Sid Field calls the paradigm. So if you put the paradigm over the three-act structure and over the narrative arc or the storytelling arc, all, the, all that structure is very similar. So here's, here's what I'm going to kind of describe to you what Sid Field's structure looks like. And, and trust me, we're going to get into Iron Man in a minute here, and we're going to get into a lot of detail about how the writers and storytellers behind Iron Man really went in to this structure and used this structure. And we'll talk about, too, where they deviated from it. But let's first describe what the structure even is. The first act is called the setup. The first act is about 30 minutes, and it ends with plot point one. It ends with plot, plot point one. At about the anywhere from the twenty-minute to thirty-minute point of the of the film, the, or the script, if you're the writer, there will be this big plot point, right? And Act One can be broken down even more. There is one other thing that happens in Act One that is called the inciting incident, and you'll see what that is too. But the inciting incident basically is like the movie starts playing, and then something happens that makes this story interesting what does that mean it means that the inciting incident is going to kick off a bunch of conflict for us and then the end of act one is going to be plot point one which then sends the story off in a different direction and really catalyzes the conflict for for the first half of um of act two okay so act two is called confrontation and in act two all we're going to see is conflict 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 Lots of things are changing. The characters are facing conflict in many ways, shapes, and forms. 
And then in the middle of Act 2, if you divide Act 2 up into two parts, which I've already suggested we should, the middle of Act 2 is essentially the midpoint of whatever story you're telling. And generally speaking, at the midpoint of the story, something else happens, some piece of information is revealed, something occurs where the story changes again, right? Then we have the second half of Act 2, and if you're drawing this on the narrative arc, right? And I described earlier, you described you're drawing this on the narrative arc. Plot point two, which happens at the end of the second half of Act Two, right? Right before Act Three. If you're drawing that arc, the plot point two, the end of Act Two, right before Act Three, is where the climax of the film generally is. This is where the character has decided, well, I'm faced with the consequences. I must do X, Y, or Z. I must think, change my mind about something. I must complete a behavior and activity. And by doing so, I can resolve the conflict that I've been experiencing for the last, you know, two acts, act one and act two. So if you look at this again, then that leads to act three, which is the resolution of the story, right? So again, setup, confrontation, resolution. Setup is act one. Confrontation is Act 2, both parts of Act 2. The resolution is Act 3. There are three major points that are expressed on this diagram. The first one is plot point 1. That's going to take the story in a different direction. The midpoint, which is going to be which is going to also take the story, it's going to reveal different information or take the story in a direction that we may have not have expected. And then there's plot point 2, which serves as the climax of the film. Now, one of the things that if you read a little bit more about Sid Field's paradigm, it's what he calls this thing. He calls his his story structure, his recommended story structure is called the paradigm. And if you read more about it, one of the things he's going to say is that in his analysis, what he's also realized is that most films can also take these little chunks of plot points or little bits of interesting things that happen in a movie to keep us watching and he goes not only can you say that plot point one happens at about the 30 minute mark and not only can you say that the midpoint which is about the 60 minute mark happens and is interesting and not only can you say that plot point two happens and is interesting and it usually happens about the 90 minute mark this is all again assuming it's a two-hour movie not only are those some really big points that happen to move the story along but also about every 15 minutes you can sort of find something else that happens that drives the story along. So if you have these really big plot points at the 30-minute mark, the 60-minute mark, and the 90-minute mark, on the 15-minute intervals in between, so like at the 15-minute mark of the movie, or at the 45-minute mark of the movie, or at the 75-minute mark of the movie, you can also find things that maybe are not as big as plot point one, the midpoint, and plot point two, but they do drive either the character to change or the plot to advance or something along those lines. There's something that happens in this structure that drives the plot forward. So I give you all of this context because we are gonna look at how Iron Man uses this structure. So hopefully you've been able to paint a mental picture of what this structure looks like. And we're gonna see how Iron Man uses it. And I'm gonna do my best to describe exactly what's going on in Iron Man so that you can get a feel for, for how this actually works. So let's dive into it. The first thing that happens in Iron Man is actually a slight deviation from the norm of what you would call the paradigm's story structure. So remember I said that something happens every 15 minutes. So a lot of times a, start, a story will start and there may be some like 
tension, but like that's just normal for the characters. It's just everything is normal and there's some tension and then there's an inciting incident. And when the inciting incident happens, that drives the story in a completely different direction. Well, Iron Man changes that dynamic just a little bit in a very, very interesting way. Because if you remember from the movie Iron Man, the story starts with Tony Stark inside what he calls the fun V, right? He's with uh, he's with a group of soldiers. He actually is drinking a glass of whiskey. They're going through the Afghanistan desert. And, you know, they, they start with a few jokes. Everything is normal. Everything is as it normally is in Tony's life. And then all of a sudden, the convoy of Humvees gets attacked. Um, Tony Stark sees that that his own weaponry is being used to attack the convoy. And then Tony is basically taken captive. So that, the beginning, the opening scene of Iron Man is actually Iron Man's inciting incident. So what does Iron Man do differently with the storytelling structure or screenplay structure than most stories would do? And this is true in the script and the film. Well, it takes the inciting incident, which may have happened closer to like 10 minutes into the movie or maybe 15 minutes into the movie. It takes that and moves it to the beginning of the movie. And you'll notice that that is actually a more common storytelling technique than you might imagine. The interesting thing about Iron Man is it goes straight from the inciting incident into a flashback scene or a set of scenes that are flashback. And that set of scenes showcases what Tony's life is normally like, right? And what, what can we say about Tony's life and how it is normally? Well, one, he's a very revered person but most of the reverence we have for him is that he's obviously very very intelligent but he's also highly irresponsible and so he's become this sort of like billionaire playboy who does kind of whatever he wants to even in the face of people trying to give him awards uh, or showcasing new weaponry to the military that he has designed he's over the top he's ridiculous um, he's careless we'll talk about this more when we get to his character arc but it kind of showcases tony in that light in the flashback scene. So the opening scene is the inciting incident. The flashback scene happens. Guess what time in the movie and in the script, the flashback scene ends. It's about minute 17, about page 17 is when the flashback series ends. And we catch up to back with Tony in Afghanistan, which is basically where the inciting incident would have been. So let's just imagine you could have started this movie with Tony gambling instead of accepting his award um, at the big gala that was being held for him. Um, and you could have showcased all of that stuff and then shown him in Afghanistan and then shown the Humvee caravan getting attacked. But they didn't do that. They showed us the attack first, which makes it a much more compelling opening, in my opinion. And then they get into the flashback about, well, how did we get here and who is Tony Stark? Very interesting way of change, slightly tweaking the storytelling structure while still using the elements that we know are good to use in stories. So after the 17-minute mark, as we're building towards plot point one, which we know is going to happen at the 30-minute mark, Tony, that for that whole time, is primarily a prisoner in Afghanistan with Yinsen. And he's being told that he has to build uh, the, I believe it's called the Jericho missile. But instead of doing that, or missile defense system or whatever, instead of doing that, he's actually building the Mark I armor. And then at plot point one of the film, the end of act one, Tony puts on the Mark I armor and uses it to escape, okay? So we've got the inciting incident. We've got a flashback scene. We get back to Afghanistan in terms of the movie timeline. 
And then he's building the Mark I suit with Yinzen. And obviously this is affecting his character development, which we'll get to in a minute. Plot point one is that he puts on the Mark I armor. He escapes with the Mark I armor. He fights off the Ten Rings. Now we're in Act Two. He fights off the Ten Rings. He destroys. He sees that all of the Stark weaponry is stuff that these guys are using. These terrorists have a, have accumulated Stark weaponry. He destroys all of that. And then we get to about 15 minutes into Act Two. It's about 12 minutes, actually, into Act Two. Tony returns home. So they pick him up. There actually is in the um, in the script. There's actually some additional scenes about Rhodey fighting to keep searching for Tony. Also in the script, which is not in the film, I don't believe, is that we learn that Tony was with the Ten Rings for three months, which I don't think you would get from just watching the movie. Maybe you guys caught something that I didn't catch. I've seen the movie numerous times now and made copious notes, obviously, but I don't believe you know he's there for three months. But in the script, that's much more obvious. And the whole time he's gone, Rhodey is fighting with um, the army generals saying, we need to be looking for Tony. So just interesting information there. But when Tony comes back um, to the U.S., he immediately announces that he's shutting down the weapons division. Now, why is he shutting down the weapons division? Because he found all of the, the Stark Industries weaponry that the Ten Rings were using. So the Stark stuff was obviously not just going to the Americans who he supports, the U.S. Army, but it was actually getting to terrorists. And so Tony is basically like, we're not going to do this anymore. I, I was almost um, killed. I had to build, uh, you know, I had to have this arc reactor to be able to keep me alive. Um, and so therefore I'm going to shut down the weapons division. Um, and that happens about the midway through the first half of act two. So remember act two is going to last from about, you know, minute 30 to about minute 90. And this is at minute 45 that this happens, that he announces that. So now Tony has a new look on life and he's new lease on life. And he's going through his, um, going through responding to being back in America and he's causing waves, right? Cause Stark industries makes a lot of weapons for the United States and makes a lot of money making a lot of weapons for the United States. So in this process, of course, he's making a lot of people mad, not the least of which is Obadiah Stane, um, who is like, Tony, don't make any rash decisions here. You know, we've got to make sure that we make money. <laughs> so, but, but Tony's already announced that he's shutting down the weapons division. So now they're talking about that and there's a lots of conflict. So the one thing you're going to see here, which is true of every story, is that there is a ton of conflict happening and there's conflict between multiple types of characters. So the next part of the story is that Tony builds the new arc reactor, a uh, better arc reactor than he had built in Afghanistan. And then he also builds the Mark II suit. And he's doing this without anybody knowing. Sark Industries doesn't know. Um, even Pepper Potts doesn't know. The only person that knows is basically Jarvis. Um, and then Tony goes out and tests the Mark II suit. And him testing the Mark II suit is... The midpoint of this film, it happens at about the 61 minute mark. It's about page 56 of the script, but that's when that's plot point two, because now it's taking the story in a new direction. Tony has a new piece of tech. Mark one was a test, but this is a really solid new piece of tech that he can use. And so then after the midpoint, what happens? Well, Tony's feeling pretty confident in himself, but he also realizes that something's going on. He's realizing that Obadiah Stane is not super happy about the announcement of what is happening with Stark Industries. And so Tony starts going to some of the normal events that he would go to. He goes to a gala 
and he's he's announcing how he's changing the course of Stark Industries to go after more of an arc reactor energy play as opposed to a weapons play, necessarily. And he also has some weird romantic connections with Pepper Potts, which is not that weird in this film until you see the rest of the MCU and realize how that actually plays out. And then I should note that, um, and this is a difference, I mentioned this in one of my videos, this is a big difference between the script and the film. So in the film, about halfway through the second half of Act 2, it's literally at minute 50, uh, 75, literally at minute 75, at about page uh, 79 in the film, because it happens later in the, in the script than it does in the film. Um, page, uh, sorry, so page 79 of the, of the script, it happens later. This is the, this is the switch around I'm going to talk about. But Obadiah is, is um, revealed to the audience, to us, the people watching, he's revealed as the villain in minute 75. Now that's really fascinating because again, it's 15 minutes past the midpoint. So from that standpoint, it's taking the story in a new direction, which is perfect. But what's really interesting about that is the script does not tell us that Obadiah Stane is the villain in that moment. Now, as a watcher of the film, we can probably all be pretty convinced that he is because they're foreshadowing it really well the whole time. But one of the things that that is interesting is in the script, we don't know that Obadiah is the villain until after Tony goes in the Mark II suit over to Afghanistan to fight the Ten Rings. So this is really, really fascinating here because when they film this movie, based on the script... The Obadiah scene where he goes and visits the Ten Rings would have happened after Tony went to Afghanistan to fight the Ten Rings. But the movie, and I'm I'm pretty sure it's in the editing because the script I was looking at online seemed like a pretty final script. But in the editing, or at least in a in a final script change at the last minute, they said, no, actually, let's, re- let's put the scene where we reveal Obadiah as the villain. Let's put that in between the Tony Stark and Pepper stuff. And Tony going to Afghanistan to fight the Ten Rings and defend the city that's out there. Really, really, really interesting. And I like that they did that because it actually it fits into the storytelling structure of Sid Field's paradigm better when you move that scene. It also what it does is it ramps up the tension for us because Tony has been suspicious of Obadiah Stane. He's been suspicious of him, but we don't know that he's the villain until we see him talking to the Ten Rings and criticizing them for not being able to kill Tony. Okay, so in the movie then, um, in the script, what we would have seen was we would have seen the the Tony Pepper stuff. Then we would have seen Tony go out to Afghanistan to fight the Ten Rings. Then we would have seen Obadiah Stane in Afghanistan revealing that he's the villain. What we what we changed was that happens first. So, so then Tony's out there fighting the Ten Rings. What's also really interesting about that, though, and I hadn't thought about this until I started analyzing this, was that technically Obadiah Stane kills a bunch of the Ten Rings before Tony goes out there to fight them, which is which is really interesting. I didn't never notice that. It never occurred to me that like Tony was fighting off the remnants of the Ten Rings, but that is the case. That is the case in this film. Plot point two is after Tony fights against the Ten Rings and then reveals that he has a Mark II suit to Rhodey and the American military because he messes with the pilots. After that happens, we see plot point two, which is 
Pepper discovers that Obadiah wanted to kill Tony. So Tony says, go into go into the computer system, download the information. Uh, I want to know what's going on with Obadiah. Pepper Pepper goes out, the downloads the information. In that information, she realizes that Obadiah Stane is the villain. So now she and we as the audience both know that Obadiah is the villain because he told the Ten Rings to kill Tony. And from then on, that's plot point two. Why is that plot point two? Because once we real, once Tony and and Pepper realize that Obadiah is the villain, that is the climax. Oh, whoa! It's a different villain. We, we the people we thought we were fighting, the Ten Rings, they're not the villain. The bigger villain is Obadiah Stane. Okay, so Obadiah Stane is revealed as the bigger villain. Pepper realizes that. That's plot point two, and then that sends us into the resolution. And the first part of the resolution is when Obadiah shows up in Tony's house and uses his um, paralysis machine to, paral to, to paralyze people through their ears, their eardrums. He uses that on Tony, takes the arc reactor from Tony. Tony almost dies. And then Tony, Tony finds the other arc reactor um, and with that is able to... Sorry, sorry, the old arc reactor. His, he uses his old arc, arc reactor and uses the Mark II suit to then confront Obadiah. It's revealed then that Obadiah has created, we know this from earlier, but Obadiah has created his suit. It's now operational and because he has the arc reactor and the two fight. And by the way, there's a couple of little secrets here. One is that um, for whatever reason, Obadiah in his armor is called Dynamo in the script, which is never mentioned in the movie to my knowledge. But I guess there must be an enemy in Iron Man called Dynamo. I have no idea. It's kind of a weird name for Obadiah. But then again, his his name is weird. Um, and comic book names are always weird. Um, the other thing that I should notice, note here is that the script and the film are very different in terms of the resolution. Um, I shouldn't say very different. They're, they're similar. But the way that Tony beats Obadiah in his suit in the film is far superior to the way he does it in the script. Uh, in the film, you'll remember if you go all the way back to, to Tony testing the Mark II suit, that was our midpoint of this film. You remember he takes, he, he just starts flying way up into space and his suit freezes over and he has to come plummeting back down. That's actually in the script. That happens in the script. But the ending in the actual uh, script, the ending in the script, not the movie, the ending in the script, that. Tony doesn't take Dynamo up to um, space to freeze the suit, which is brilliant because it's a brilliant callback to the midpoint where Tony realizes something and it's kind of foreshadowing the fact that he's going to take Obadiah's suit up because Obadiah doesn't have the context that Tony has. He doesn't know that if you take the suit that high, it freezes over. So instead, there's a whole scene where um, Pepper sets off an EMP bomb and that EMP bomb shuts both Tony's suit down and Obadiah's suit down. And then Obadiah falls into like a giant vat of stuff, very um, uh, very Joker-like <laughs> and then apparently dies. Uh, so very different. So pretty interesting stuff there in the difference between the script and the film. But as you can see, there's major events happening every 15 minutes sending everything in a different direction, causing more people chaos, causing the characters to shift into their different aspects of change. And this, I would call this story structure for Iron Man great. I think I called it perfect in my in my YouTube video. 
um you are always very hyperbolic in youtube videos i i there are some things that i think could be better about this story structure but not really very many the choices that were made in the editing room and the choices were made at the last minute which means it's all up to john favreau at that point because he's the one that gets to make those decisions he did a great job and we all we all know john favreau is amazing at storytelling so that's not really surprising but he did a great job so that's the, that's the story structure. Story structure is fantastic. It works really, really well for Iron Man. Now let's get into the character development of Tony Stark because that's another aspect of storytelling that people gravitate towards. In fact, every story has two things, really. Um, well, every good story has two things. You can maybe argue that there's narratives that aren't really stories that, have, that don't have these two things, but every story essentially has two things, characters and conflict. And even if you're doing, even if there's an uh, inanimate object, if it becomes a character, it's technically a character. So every story has like characters and conflict and Iron Man has plenty of that. So let's talk about character development. Structure is great. Let's talk about character development. Character development, um, it's really interesting because uh, I learned a lot about character development from a completely different book called The Art of Dramatic Writing by Laos Agree. And Laos Agree is primarily writing about stage plays and character development but stage plays were the predecessor to films and so it's helpful to go back to that era to learn more about what they were learning about storytelling so that we can tell better stories as well so if you go back to that era what laos agree identified was a couple things that are highly important to telling stories that involve characters um, the first is that characters go through an arc and that's what makes them interesting the character changes over the course of the play of the film of the book of whatever the second thing is is that characters when they change too fast or when they jump through different stages of character development as opposed to gradually working their way through stages of character development the audience does not like that. Now, why why would that be the case? Why did Laos agree? Why how did he figure out that that was the case? Well, it's kind of inherent in human beings. So think about it this way. This is one of the examples. He doesn't quite use this example, but I'm paraphrasing the example from the book. If you said if you said that there was a super happy, uh, gregarious, happy-go-lucky person character. And then all of a sudden, you've, you've only showcased that character as being happy and just really content in life and everything's going well for them. They're in love, all these things. And then you all of a sudden have them kill another character? Well, from a storytelling standpoint, everybody listening to this story or watching the story or uh, reading the story or whatever, everybody's going to be like, what in the world? That doesn't make any sense. Why would someone who's happy and has their whole life together and everything's working... How in the world would they end up murdering someone? And what Laos Agree would say is he would say, you skipped character development steps or you jumped character development steps. You took a character from one state of being into another state of being without anything in the middle. And what that does, now I'm going to bring in some of my learnings from Lisa Kron's Wired for Story. When Lisa Kron says the brain is wired to understand and interpret the world through storytelling, what is she saying? Well, she's saying the human being is wired to understand why things happen. And if I tell you a story, 
I'll tell you what, this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, and you go, oh, wow, all of those things happened. Oh, that's why that happened? Oh, interesting. So you did this, and then that happened, and that was why that happened? Okay. And you go along with it because the brain is being revealed. It's being revealed to the brain why these things occurred. There's cause and effect relationships. Even if there is a coincidence that happens, uh, maybe there's a there's a reason why that is, or there's an interpretation or an understanding of why that is, and so you so you try to understand that as well. Anyways, my point is, is that all of these storytelling experts are in agreement that you can't skip stages. So now, if we had a character that started out happy-go-lucky at the beginning of the film, everything's going really well for him in life, but then all of a sudden his girlfriend breaks up with him. Now he's a little bit depressed. And then he has a health scare. And so now he's a little bit scared. And then at work, there's somebody who's bullying him and trying to get him fired or get him canceled or whatever. And now all of a sudden he's anxious and he's fearful. And then all of a sudden he sees the bully hooking up with his former girlfriend. Then he's infuriated. infuriated. Then we see that he's being accosted by the bully another time. Well, that's a character that we can all think, well, man, this guy has gone way downhill. He's super scared. He's backed into a corner. That's somebody who could possibly murder someone. So if you want to see like someone going through that kind of arc, you could look at the character of the Joker from the the late the uh, the latest Joker. The um, of course, by the time you listen to this, there might be ten other Jokers, but uh, the Joaquin Phoenix Joker. You can see him go down this arc where he's already kind of unstable, but then he keeps going down a path where he's completely chaotic. So uh, the point of all of that, the point about talking about all of those things is that characters don't just jump from one state to another state. They walk down a path that gets them from point A to point Z. They can't go from A to G to and just jump stages because that doesn't, from, a, from an audience standpoint, it doesn't sit well in our brains. So let's look at Tony Stark's character development throughout Iron Man. And before I get into his specific development, let me talk a little bit more about how character development tends to work. Now, Leos Agree says there's usually about four or five in a stage play. There's usually about four or five stages where the character's at a different emotional state, right? As they move along their character arc. That's why that's why we call it a character arc, by the way, because it's it it happens in a it happens gradually over time, just like there's a narrative arc. The character arc kind of goes along with that. Well, uh, one of the things that I've now analyzed is that if you look at the plot points of film, let's say, and by the way, when I said there's four or five character development steps in a stage play, basically, the, the longer the work of art, the more character change you can work in. The shorter the work of art, like in a short story, you can maybe go from like, one to two to you may be lucky if you get three different character stages emotional states um but in a longer work like a movie you can i think you can easily get to five or six in fact i have iron man having six different emotional states and i'll walk you through what those are uh, five or six we'll, we'll we'll see as we break it down so how does it match up to the plot and the story structure that we just mentioned earlier and can we line things up to can we take what leos agrees talking about and can we associate that with Sid, with Sid Field's paradigm? Well, it turns out that we can. And how can we do that? Well, because the, the movie's going to start and the character is going to be at one emotional state, 
right? We're going to get into Tony's in a minute, but you can imagine Frodo, when Lord of the Rings starts, he's in the Shire, he's hanging out there having a party, he's in a very positive emotional state, right? After that comes the inciting incident where the world just suddenly changes on the character and that sends them into a new emotional state. In Frodo's case, it's when he's forced to leave the Shire. Now now Frodo's experiencing emotions that we did not see him experiencing before. Then after plot point one, plot point one is a big thing that happens that sends the story in another direction. We're gonna, you know, we talked about that in Iron Man, about him putting on the Mark I armor and escaping. After that plot point happens, the character for the beginning of Act Two is in a different emotional state. Slightly different emotional state because they're interacting with the conflict and it's causing them to experience different emotions. Then halfway through the film at the midpoint, something else is going to happen. It's going to tweak it, tweak the story a little bit more. And after that happens, we're going to see the character in another emotional state. Then at the end of act two, plot point two, the climax of, in this case, the film, that's going to cause another set of emotions and after the resolution at the very end of the film, what emotional state is the character in at that point? Well, that's the last emotional state that they would experience. So you can see it's a journey. There's a step-by-step-by-step emotional state. So I have, I have six of them laid out here. How, where they start, where they're at after the inciting incident, where they're at after plot point one, where they're at after the midpoint, and where they're at after plot point two, and then finally, where they're at at the very end of the film, the emotional state they're at there. So let's just take a look at what Tony's experiencing and go through it one by one. What I find really great about Iron Man is that it does a really good job with Tony. And it sets up franchise storytelling in a pretty unbelievable way. And we're going to talk about both those points as we go through this. So how do we see, how is Tony showcased to us at the very beginning of the film? What is Tony's emotional state? Well, for for, for one... Um, I think one of the best words to describe Tony is that he's very smug. So keep that in mind. He's very smug. He's also very careless. He doesn't care about the awards. He doesn't care about people. He doesn't care about the the women that he's sleeping with. He, he's car- he's a careless person. He just doesn't care that much. He's even drinking uh, whiskey in the Humvee, right? And as soon as he showcases the Jericho weapon, he turns around opens up a new suitcase and the whole thing's full of drinks, right? So he's very careless. He's not, the situation in Afghanistan is very serious, but he's treating it as if it's a big joke. Um, He's also flaky. He's missing events. He's not showing up for events. He's showing up to his plane late. He's indifferent. He doesn't seem to care about any of these things, which is very similar to careless and flaky, is indifferent. And he's also very arrogant. He thinks a lot of himself, (laughs) right? And, And of course, a lot of people think highly of him too, but he's very arrogant. So then the inciting incident happens, right? So keep in mind, this is the, we don't see what his emotional state is after the inciting incident until he's in the cave in Afghanistan. He's in the cave in Afghanistan, completely different set of emotions. He's rattled for one. He's serious now. He's troubled. He's obstinate and he's agitated. Now I've done one thing on here and you can see this in the video version, but uh, I've added um, colors to the emotions. So I've got three colors here, right? There's, there's red, which is a negative emotion or an emotion that we all perceive as negative in a character. There's orange or yellow, either way you want to say it, which is, it's neither positive nor negative. It just is a state of being. 
And then there's green, just positive. There's, there's We want people to feel these these kinds of emotions, you know? Um, and in this case, when we see that Tony, Tony is rattled, he's not used to being a prisoner. He's used to having all the freedom that he wants. So he's rattled. That's negative. He's serious, which is neither negative nor positive. Serious is just, you're just serious. You're just being serious, um, which is just neutral. He's troubled, which is negative. We don't want people to feel troubled. He's obstinate, which is, again, neither positive nor negative. It's it's neutral. He's obstinate because he's supposed to be building the Jericho missile, but he's not. <laughs> he's building a Mark One suit. And then he's also agitated. Now, agitated is not a good place um, to be either. Now, you could argue that some of these emotions in some circumstances are positive, but generally speaking, this would be considered negative, right? All right, so then after plot point one, he puts on the Mark One armor. He uses that armor to escape. Um, he is, there's a slightly different set of emotions when he escapes because now he's fighting off the 10 rings and he's destroying the Stark weaponry. So what do we learn about his emotional state at that point in time? Well, one, he's determined. He's very determined to get out of the, the state that he's in. Number two, he's still agitated, still feeling a lot of emotions about this. And three, he's enlightened. Why is he enlightened? Because now he has understood that the Stark weaponry is being used by terrorists. It's not supposed to be in the hands of terrorists. It's only supposed to be in the U.S. military's hands. Then he announces, he goes back to the U.S., he announces the weapons division shutdown, and now we see Tony Stark's first positive emotion, the one that we want him to experience uh, as much as possible, and that is that he's inspired. He's inspired to say, I don't want to create weapons anymore. I want to do something different with the company. He's also assertive. We see him for the first time say, I know the direction I want to head, and it's this direction. Before this, it looks like Tony's being carted around to do things on other people's behalf. But right now he's saying, no, I'm, I'm going to be assertive here. Now, assertive is a neutral emotion. In this case, it's good for Tony. But it doesn't mean that it's like a positive emotion. It's just more of like, I need to do something different with my life. So it's a neutral emotion. And he's also excited, which is a neutral emotion, because you can be excited uh, in a positive way or a negative way, technically. Okay, so then we move into the, we're getting close to the midpoint. So this is right before the midpoint. Tony is um, building his own suit, his Mark II suit. He's already, and he's building his arc reactor as well, his new arc reactor. And the emotions he's experiencing there are is he's driven. He's very driven to create a new suit. In fact, he seemed much more driven to create his new suit than he seemed earlier. He seemed more interested in like making money and having fun. But now he's very driven to use his mind to create this suit. He's also very eager. He's excited about this thing. Um, excited to announce the arc reactor technology, the thing that he's discovered that he's been able to build. He's also very enthusiastic, which is a positive emotion. Um, enthusiastic about the future and about the suit that he has created. And then there is a negative emotion in there too, and that's that he's uh, suspicious. He's suspicious of what Stark Industries is up to and what Obadiah is up to. Then we hit the midpoint, right? The midpoint is where he tests the Mark II suit. Then he comes back from that test. He goes to the gala. We see him flirting with Pepper and so on and so forth. We, then there's a different set of emotions there. He's confident because he's been able to build the suit. He's enthusiastic about the future because he's tested the suit and it works. So he remains enthusiastic about it. He's still suspicious. He's still eager. Okay, so those are the emotions he experiences right after the midpoint. Then uh, the reveal of Obi as, or Obadiah, they call him Obi in the film too. Uh, the reveal is o of Obi as the villain is technically 
not something that Tony is reacting to. So there's no new emotions for Tony. But what Tony does react to and what he does react emotionally to is that he sees the report about what's going on in Afghanistan with the 10 rings and he flies out in the Mark II suit to combat the 10 rings who are trying to take over that whole area. And in that, he is now dominant because he has this really kick-ass suit that he built. And dominant is sort of a neutral emotion. It's not necessarily good, but it can be good. It's not necessarily, but it also can be bad. You, you can be dominant in really negative ways. In this case, he's being dominant in a very kind of neutral way. Um, he's being vengeful, which is technically a little bit of a negative emotion. So maybe a little bit of a step back for Tony in that moment. Um, but he's being aggressive and he's being a little bit brazen. Now he's brazen mostly when he goes against the U S military. So not as positive of emotions for Tony in this particular moment, but just wait a minute because we're going to hit plot point two, which is when pepper discovers that Obi wanted to kill Tony. And then she goes to tell Tony that, and then Obi steals the arc reactor from Tony. And now Tony has a, a whole new set of emotions. Uh, the first emotion is really important. He is resolved. Tony is resolved. What is he resolved? He's resolved that he was making the right choice in shutting down the weapons division. And even in the light of all the conflict that has arisen, the board of directors is pissed off at him. Obadiah is pissed off at him. He's resolved that he's made the right decision. And Obadiah being a villain has only backed that up in his mind. But he's also alarmed and fearful. Why? Because, because not only is Pepper's life at risk, but he doesn't have the arc reactor anymore, and he asked, and he almost dies. So he's he realizes that Obadiah is serious about this, which is why it brings up the last emotion on here, which is a great emotion. I love this emotion in characters, and it's that Tony Stark is persevering. He's not going to just give up on this decision and be like, you know, I should probably just let Obadiah win. Um, he seems like he's dedicated to bringing down the down me as, a, as an individual and does not like the new direction I want to go, so I should just give in. No, 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 of course not. He's resolved and persevering. That is awesome. Now, resolved is a neutral emotion because you can be resolved about something that you shouldn't be resolved about. Um, but in this case, Tony's resolved about a good thing and he's persevering, which makes it a great decision on his part. And then the end, there's a big fight scene and then Tony at the end of the movie has a completely different set of emotions and, well, not a completely different set. Ooh. This is a secret. This is a secret of franchise storytelling. At the end of the film, Tony Stark is triumphant, jubilant, smug. Ooh, smug. He was smug at the beginning of the film. Wait a minute. He's still smug? Yes, he's still smug. He's very smug. In fact, when he's doing his press conference, he's like, I'm going to go ahead and announce to the world that I'm Iron Man. That's very smug. It's a very smug thing to do. But here's the big deal. Here's the really, really big deal. Remember when we said at the very beginning of the film that Tony was careless? We said he was smug and careless were two of the words that we used to describe Tony Stark at the beginning of the film. Well, now he still has some smugness to him, but now he's self-respecting. Now he's self-respecting. He's not careless anymore. He was careless because he didn't have self-respect. Why didn't he have self-respect? That's when we need to get into the premise. The premise of the film is really important as it pertains to Tony's character development and the plot of how the story has filtered itself out. But before we get there, just want to make a note that the arc of Tony Stark, I'm going to simplify it down so that you can you can just get the, the simple aspects of Tony Stark's character arc. He starts out the story smug and careless. He's smug and careless at the beginning of the story. There's the other emotions we talked about too, but I'm just going to narrow this down to the core emotion that is driving his character development. So he's smug and careless. Then he's rattled, right? So he goes from being from negative emotions 
when he's like self-focused, right? He's negative emotions, self-focused, smug and careless. Those are self-focused emotions. Then he's rattled, which is still a self-focused thing. I'm, oh, I'm in big trouble here. I need to get out of this trouble. Then he's driven. Now, notice that when he's driven, so he's rattled after, after he's, while he's captured, then he builds the Mark I suit and he's driven. He's driven to change something. He's driven to do something different in the world. Then he's eager because he goes, you know what? I did it. I built a, I built a new arc reactor. It's amazing technology. I built my brand new Mark II suit. I am super eager about the future possibilities. And then he learns that, oh, wait a minute, Obadiah is trying to kill me and trying to take over my company. So now he's resolved. I'm resolved and persevering to overcome Obadiah. And then in the very end, he's still smug. He's still smug, but he's self-respecting. And you're going to see why self-respecting is so important when we get to the premise, like I just mentioned. But the self-respecting means that he's also others-focused now. So he starts the story out self-focused. He ends the story Others focused, that's a traditional hero approach, going from being selfish to selfless. And um, he's self-respecting, which is great. Now, I also mentioned that he did not change in one way, and that is that he's smug. And that is a core of franchise storytelling, is that the character does not change into a new character, but rather solves a problem, creates a new emotional state, goes through an arc, but still carries with them some of the baggage that they used to carry with them as well. And that's how we recognize them as the same character. It's how they are going to face that consequence multiple times. I think one of the things that you'll see if you analyze the entire MCU, uh, Tony Stark eventually loses that smugness. But it takes multiple movies, not just one movie, it takes multiple movies and multiple stories for him to get rid of that smugness. Now, I really want to get into the premise and the theme because that is going to calcify the awesome storytelling of Iron Man. It's going to make that it's going to make it realistic to us, which is really really cool and I and I can't wait to showcase what that looks like. So let's get into the premise and the theme of Iron Man and then also the uh, the concept as well. Now the premise, where does the premise come from? The premise also comes from Leos Agree. Now I am a big fan of the premise. In fact, I would call the premise one of the core things as a storyteller that I have kind of fallen in love with, if you will. Um, and it's because the premise is what, let me, just, let me just define it for you the way that Leos Agree from his book, The Art of Dramatic Writing, what he says is the definition of a premise. But then I'm gonna redefine it for you because his, his definition's a little bit more vague, I think. His definition of the premise is a proposition antecedently supposed or proved a basis of argument, a proposition antecedently supposed or proved a basis of an argument. Now, what is he saying there? What is he saying? I'm going to redefine this for you. This is my revision of his definition of a premise. My revision is a premise is showcasing truth about the shared human experience through story. Those are the two, those are two saying the same thing in different ways, right? I can start out my film saying, I believe something about the world, or I'm exploring a belief about the world. And then I, through the process of storytelling, figure out if I'm on the right track or if I'm on the wrong track. I see if my hypothesis about the world is true or I see if it's false. And how do I, how in the world would I know if my hypothesis about the world is true or false based on a story? Well, because we put characters in situations and we see if this happened to a person, 
what would be the outcome? Well, if the outcome is completely ridiculous, then I'm not telling the truth. I'm not, I have not aligned to the truth in the shared human experience. But if the outcome is feels like it's, yeah, that feels really right to me. Lord of the Rings, and the reason why I keep using it as a side example, even though we're talking about Iron Man, the reason why Lord of the Rings is so good is because it has one of the best premises in the history of literature. And Peter Jackson, to his credit, kept that in the film. And so the, the, the truth of the shared human experience, the truth that Frodo can walk all the way to Mount Doom but can't even take the action required of him, meaning that we as human beings, no matter how hard we try, we cannot be perfect. We cannot be perfect. But Gollum, in his imperfection, steps in and crashes into the, the fire of Mount Doom. And it, and it seems so much like that these events have been orchestrated by a greater power, right? Whether you call it fate or God or whatever you call it, it's like fate or God orchestrated this set of events because humankind, hobbit kind, orc kind, they couldn't have done it themselves. And yet they had significant roles to play. I feel like that's one of the best premises I've ever, to me, the shared human experience in that is really, really powerful. Um, now, this is another point, right? Sometimes not everyone will agree on the shared human experience because you might have just listened to what I said and been like, oh man, I don't agree with that at all. That's totally fine. But, the sh but what we want to see is that we want to see as much of a shared human experience as possible. And that's what differentiates one audience from another. One audience can say, yeah, that's how the world works in my mind. Like, for example, I don't really like Christian films, and I feel like most of the premise of Christian films is completely inappropriate and actually not very Christian. But there's a lot of people who feel like it's great, and it's like shared experience that they've had. So, yeah, the, the, the premise will dictate your audience to a certain degree. Um, so let's get into the premise specifically for Iron Man because it's, I think it's a really, really good one. Um. Now, before I do that, though, let me just set up for the rest of you like how you would write this out. First, a character trait presented with conflict will result in something. Okay? A character trait put in a situation where there's conflict will then have a result of some kind, right? So let's just let's just play this out in a couple of uh Plays out in a couple of different examples. The first will be Romeo and Juliet. Really, really popular story. This is coming straight from Leo Segre in his book. He says that Romeo and Juliet prove that great love defies even death. Great love defies even death. What does that mean? It means that you cannot kill great love. You cannot destroy it because it will survive even death. Uh, to the point where Romeo and Juliet will say, I refuse to obey by my family's preferences about what I should be doing or not doing. I refuse. I will choose love over my family in this case, right? So that's a premise. It's a shared human experience is that we've seen people say like, no, love is more important than death and they'll fight for their country or whatever. Another one is uh, Othello. He brings up Othello. Jealousy plus conflict, so destruction, will kill itself and the object of its love. Okay, let me just say this again. Jealousy destroys itself and the object of its love. So how does that work? 
Well, jealousy eats a person up inside, destroying them, and then also it 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 has a it has a a counter effect by the person who um, maybe loves the other person or is jealous because of the other person that they're with. And this this is the case in Othello. It destroys that whole relationship. So jealousy destroys itself and the object of its love. And I think Othello is um, one of the most powerful stories out there. So if that's what uh, Leos Agree is saying, is like how, how you come up with the premise is that you find some character a character trait, you present that character, you test that character trait against conflict, and then what is the result of that thing? And that is your premise, right? So he's given us a couple of examples. Now let's look at what this looks like for Iron Man. Let's look at what this looks like for Iron Man. Now I would argue that the character trait that is being tested in Iron Man is drive or driven. He's, he's driven. He is super intelligent. He has a lot of ingenuity. Um, and then that conflict is, is presented when it says you have to use that for good or for bad. What's going to happen? What happens if you, if you have a character trait of being driven and then you're faced with conflict, what is the result? What is the result? So I have written out here is that drive overcomes broken legacy. So let me just restate that in a sentence. The premise of Iron Man, according to the way I see it, is that ingenuity and drive overcome broken legacies and result in newfound self-respect. Ingenuity and drive overcome broken legacies and result in newfound respect. We'll circle back to this in a minute because we're going to talk about theme and I want to see how the theme works with the premise to really solidify everything about this film that we like. So let's talk about the themes in Iron Man. A theme, a definition of a theme, this is just taken from basically the, the dictionary. <laughs> the definition of a theme is an idea that recurs in or pervades a work of art or literature. I believe that there are three themes in Iron Man. Three themes. These are different than emotions. These are, these are different than the premise as well, although they're related to the premise quite a bit. The three themes are legacy. Tony moves out of his father's shadow to create his own legacy, right? Identity. Tony learns that his behavior and talents have a significant impact on society, which means he can transition from self-focused to others-focused. That's an identity change for Tony. And then finally, the, the military-industrial complex, the danger of privatized corporations that have their profitability linked with war. Okay, Legacy, identity, and the military-industrial complex. Note that the military-industrial complex is not the U.S. military. Tony stays... Tony has always respected the U.S. military. Tony likes the U.S. military. He likes Rhodey. He doesn't always agree with what they're doing. But at one point in time in the MCU, Tony says he should be... Uh, that the Avengers should be governed by the U.S. military, or the, at least the U.N. So Tony does not have uh, a, any ill will toward the U.S. military. But the military-industrial complex, the privatized production of military instruments, always trying to get something new and more destructive, that is a problem in this film. So legacy identity and the military industrial complex. All really, really fascinating. 
Now, before we land the plane on this, because there's not only the premise, there's not only the theme, there's also the concept. Let's talk about the concept for a minute. The concept comes from a different book, a book I like a lot called Writing for Emotional Impact by Carl Iglesias. Special shout out to Carl Iglesias. The concept is basically the selling point of the story. Like, why would you want to watch a story? Well, that's the concept. Let me tell you the concept. And if that makes you go, oh, yeah, I want to see that, then that means you're onto something. You might have a really good story on your hands. So the concept is defined as the thing that makes your story idea appealing to audiences. So the concept is not only a marketing tool, but is also a storytelling tool. Why? Because people don't have to listen to your stories. <laughs> they can just literally walk away, tune you out, not listen to anything you have to say. Therefore, a concept is very important because it's go it makes people go, wait, do I want to listen to this story? Do I want to pay attention? Do I want to learn something from the story or do I want to ignore it? Well, the concept of Iron Man is, and, and by the way, a concept is broken down by two things, being uniquely familiar and promising conflict. Uniquely familiar, meaning we haven't necessarily seen it before, but we've seen something that's similar to it. And then, of course, the promise of conflict to come, because that is the essence of storytelling and is almost always interesting to the human brain. So let's explore this a little bit more as it pertains to Iron Man. But before we do that, let's talk about some other concepts that I think you'll recognize pretty soon. In fact, I'm going to give you a chance to guess at them before I actually reveal what the movie is. The first is a teenager is mistakenly sent to the past where he must make sure that his mother and father meet and fall in love or else he won't exist in the future. Did you guess it? Back to the future. Back to the future. Of course, that's the premise or the concept of back to the future. The concept of back to the future is a super strong one because it goes like, wow, that sounds really fascinating as a movie. And I would like to see that. Here's another one for you. You can guess this one too. This is this one's like super easy to, as well. A group of ex-psychic investigators start a commercial ghost extermination business in New York City. So what do you think that one is? <laughs> of course, it's Ghostbusters. Ghostbusters. So as you can see, that's what you would present to someone to see if they want to see your film. So let's talk about this for a second. What is Iron Man's concept? Well, here's what I would say Iron Man's concept is. A brilliant engineer builds a suit of armor in order to protect himself and others from terrorists and the greedy corporation founded by his father. A brilliant engineer builds a suit of armor in order to protect himself and others from terrorists and the greedy corporation founded by his father. So it's unique, but it's familiar. Why? Because we've seen other people build suits of armor before. I mean, we've seen them fight bad guys before. But if he has to protect himself from terrorists and a greedy corporation, that's a promise of conflict to come. So there you go. I think that's, that's basically pretty close to the concept of Iron Man. So let's walk through the premise, the themes, and the concept one more time so that we can look at the structure, the emotional journey that Tony Stark takes, and see what it's proving about the world to see if it resonates with an audience. Well, the premise is ingenuity and drive overcome broken legacies and result in newfound self-respect. The themes, self-discovery versus legacy, others-focused versus self-focused, and the dangers of the military-industrial complex. And finally, the concept which I just read to you, a brilliant engineer builds a suit of armor in order, in order to protect himself and others from terrorists and the greedy corporation founded by his father. So what is this story all about? It is about a guy, Tony Stark, who's living for himself. He's smug and careless. 
and he realizes that the world is a bigger place and he's in a position of danger and he should be others focused. But in order to be others focused, he has to use his ingenuity and his drive to overcome the broken legacy of his father. Why a broken legacy? Because Tony is one of the reasons Tony is careless. One of the reasons Tony Stark is careless is that he is living into his father's legacy. He's not being his own person. And therefore, he doesn't care. And by the way, his father's legacy, which was an amazing one, which was very much needed to fight off the evil Nazis of Nazi Germany in World War II, his father's legacy made sense. His father, his father was not building a military industrial complex company. His father was helping the U.S. overcome evil. The problem is, is that Tony's not changing the world. He's just living into what his father already changed. Tony's not self-respecting. He's careless. He doesn't care about what happens to him. He just wants to have fun and have a good time. He doesn't really see his place in the world, except that then he does because bad things happen to him and he goes through an emotional journey. He goes through a narrative arc. The story structure supports the fact that Tony needs to change. Tony can't stay self-focused. He can't rely upon his father's legacy anymore. He needs to have more self-respect. And in order to attain that self-respect, he needs to find his own ingenuity. He needs to find his own drive. And he needs to overcome the broken legacy. The broken legacy of his father because his father's legacy was awesome, but it turned into something broken because Tony hasn't taken it into the new into a new era. Tony's just feeding off of the, his father's legacy as opposed to building his own. And therefore, the only way he's going to find self-respect is if he changes the course of his life and plots a new direction. Hence, taking Stark Industries and turning it into a company that is for the defense of other people, not for making weapons to make money. And that is why all of these things work together to create Iron Man, which is a phenomenal film. And I think we can all agree it's just super, super fun to watch and meaningful to a lot of people. So if you like this podcast, please let me know in the comments down below. If you see anything else about this film that I missed that you would like to bring up, let me know. But now that we've completed our analysis of Iron Man from a storytelling perspective, it's not surprising to see why so many people love it. The storytellers, John Favreau, and then the screenwriters, Mark Fergus, Hawk Ostby, Art Markham, and Matt Holloway, used very traditional storytelling methods to draw us into the plot, the characters, and the premise of Iron Man. Thanks for listening, and don't forget, there's a bunch of extra content available to Patreon supporters. Support the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash howstorieswork. I will see you on the next show. <laughs>